This year began with a buying frenzy for cryptocurrency. It's ending with a catastrophic collapse and concerns about crypto's future viability. The moment you kind of have one problem somewhere in the crypto sector, it spreads very, very quickly. What the world of crypto looks like today, coming up on this Thursday, December 29th, this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, how record snowfall in western states this year could mean less chance of drought next year. 2022 was a record-setting year for investing in electric vehicle battery plants in the U.S., and there's a good chance next year will be even bigger. And one of the world's greatest soccer players has died. Pele was a Brazilian superstar who revolutionized the game and captivated fans worldwide. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. One of the world's greatest soccer players has died. The Brazilian legend Pele was 82 years old. One of his daughters confirmed his death on Instagram. He'd been hospitalized in Sao Paulo since late last month, where he'd been battling complications from colon cancer. Catherine Osborne reports Pele served as a global ambassador for the sport and for his home country. Pele became a soccer phenomenon during one of the first televised World Cups in 1958. His creative and flashy style of play contributed to a nickname that has stuck with the sport, as he once told CNN. I think it will be always the beautiful game. Pele made it beautiful. He vaulted soccer balls high over his opponents' heads, dribbled them off defenders' shins, and leapt up to rocket them backwards while airborne. Born to a poor family in rural Brazil, he spoke often about soccer's power to transcend national borders. Pele played in the 70s for a New York club, boosting American interest in the game. To Brazilian fans, he was known simply as the king. For NPR News, I'm Catherine Osborne in Rio de Janeiro. Pele was the only player to win the World Cup three times. The death toll from the blizzard that hit western New York is rising. Erie County Executive Mark Polencar said on Twitter this afternoon that 39 people are now confirmed dead, 31 of them in Buffalo alone. Southwest Airlines says it expects to get back to normal operations by tomorrow. Southwest has been struggling to recover after the storm overwhelmed the carrier with cancellations. Southwest has canceled more than 13,000 flights since its meltdown began. The committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol has withdrawn its subpoena for former President Donald Trump. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports. Chairman Benny Thompson informed Trump's attorney that the committee's hearings are over and their report is out, so he was no longer seeking the records and testimony requested in the subpoena issued on October 21st. Trump's attorney, Harmeet Dillon, said the committee, quote, waved the white flag the committee did not respond to NPR's request for comment. Thompson explained in the letter, the panel can no longer pursue the specific information they were seeking since its investigation is concluding. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Washington. Kansas Governor Laura Kelly banning TikTok from state employee devices because of ties to China. David Condos of the Kansas News Service has more. The ban means employees of the Kansas executive branch can no longer access the popular video sharing platform on their state-owned phones and laptops. TikTok is owned by a China-based company, and there's growing concern that the Chinese government could use the app to collect users' data. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has warned that poses a national security threat. Kansas joins the federal government and at least 16 other states that have already banned TikTok on employee devices. But Kelly is the first Democratic governor to do so. 
For NPR News, I'm David Condos. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Traffic troubles continue on the turnpike. There's a two-mile backup now on the turnpike eastbound just before 128 into Newton. That's because the right lane of the pike is closed in Auburndale. This morning, a dump truck with its lift in the upright position hit the Auburn Street Bridge over the highway. The Department of Transportation is inspecting the damage. It has no estimate for when the scene will clear. The dump truck driver suffered minor injuries. State housing officials say they'll soon lack the money to provide emergency housing to families in need. The Department of Housing and Community Development has sent a letter to state lawmakers. It says funding for new emergency shelters will run out within 90 days unless lawmakers provide more money. The department says without new funding, it will operate its current shelter network, but will not be able to place new families in housing. Governor Charlie Baker says the state is dealing with an influx of more than 11,000 migrants this year. It could be another year before we see recommendations for changes to the Massachusetts state seal. The state house is considering, or the house that is, is considering a bill to give commission on the topic. Uh, 11 more months to work. The panel has missed several deadlines since it was created last year. At issue is the imagery of an arm and sword that hang over the head of a Native American. It features Latin words that mean, by the sword we seek peace, but peace only under liberty. Supporters of changing the seal say the imagery is demeaning to Native Americans. If you're looking for a way to ring in the new year, Boston's waterfront will be lined with ice sculptures Saturday. More than 30 sites around the harbor are commissioning the frozen art. Rebecca Smirling is director of the programs at Boston Harbor Now. Her team wanted to create a way for people to get excited about the new year leading up to the midnight fireworks. She says some of the sculptures are pretty creative. You can find generally in the seaport um, lots of really fun mythical creatures, including mermaids and yetis. The sculpture will be on display starting at 1 in the afternoon on New Year's Eve day. Should be pretty warm over the weekend. Starting with today, 54 degrees still in the Boston area. Should fall to about 36 tonight. Then tomorrow, milder than today, up around 56. Sunshine again. The warm weather keeps coming over the weekend. Saturday, 55 degrees. Sunday as well. Look for clouds on Saturday. The chance of rain for New Year's Eve uh, evening and then Sunday, New Year's Day. Maybe some early morning showers, sunshine later on. This is WBUR. It's 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Here's some good news about the winter storms that have swept through the U.S. over the last week. For western states dealing with drought, these blizzards are like deposits in a savings account. In the spring, the melting snowpack will pour into the region's water supply. Andrew Schwartz is with UC Berkeley's Central Sierra Snow Lab. Hey there. How's it going? Good. Where have we reached you? Describe what it looks like around you. I'm up in Soda Springs, California, which is about 45 minutes northwest of Lake Tahoe. So we're right here on the Pacific Crest, where all the big storm systems come in and slam into the Sierra Nevada. We've got some big fat snowflakes falling outside, a new coat of snow on top of some existing stuff. And it's it's a bit of a winter wonderland out there, to be honest. How much snow are we talking about? I mean, in Northern California to start with, what are you seeing relative to average snowfall for this time of year? 
So right now, in terms of overall snowfall, we have about 189% of what we would expect in an average year. Wow. So we've had 174 inches so far, which is absolutely fantastic. Now, of course, we're primarily concerned with our water content, right? Because we want to make sure that that's all going into our reservoirs and we can try to claw our way out of this drought. So that's still good. That's still at 170%, not quite as high as the 189%, but we're definitely there. We're looking good so far. What about a state like Nevada, which is seeing its worst drought in, by some measures, 1,200 years? I mean, how much of a dent can one good year of precipitation really make? Well, Nevada is doing well also. You know, we're seeing them anywhere from 170 to almost 200 percent of average. So they're looking quite good now as well. But with that being said, we are in such a precipitation deficiency that we need potentially a whole nother year of rain and snowfall to make up for the drought. But if we can continue these numbers and we get around to April and we're still at this wonderful above average point, we can start talking about coming out a little bit. Maybe not completely, but a little bit. Why is snowpack more useful than heavy rain when it comes to fighting drought? Snow is really what we want to fight drought because when we look at drought, we can divide it into two different sections. We have natural drought, which affects our ecosystems and uh, the plants and animals that reside in them. And then we have our own human drought, where, of course, we're concerned about our water supply and our purposes, such as agriculture. So when we talk about snow being on top of the mountains and being more important than perhaps rainfall, it's because it sits up there and really acts as a reservoir that slowly releases water in spring and summer. And while it's slowly releasing that water that goes down into our dams, it's also keeping kind of a lid on our fire danger by keeping the forest nice and moist and healthy. And it's preventing any type of real unhealthy ecosystem development that might be related to heat or water stress. So rain is definitely helpful, but we really like to see snowpack for those reasons. We're still early in the season, so what are you looking for in the months ahead? Uh, This is a terrific start to the season. We're very, very excited to have it. That being said, we started the same way last year, right? We had nearly 18 feet of snowfall in the month of December alone last year here at the lab, which was an all-time high, and it was absolutely wonderful. But then the faucet shut off January through March. So what we're really looking for now is just for this storm cycle to continue. We have this great base. We need more snow to come in on top of it and provide us with even more snow on top of the above average that we already have. That way this can continue into the spring and we end up coming out of the drought a little bit. Andrew Schwartz is lead scientist and manager of the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab. Thanks a lot. Thank you. For crypto, 2022 started with exuberance and a buying frenzy, but the year is ending with a catastrophic collapse and what's allegedly one of the biggest financial frauds in history. NPR's David Gura reports. Remember all the commercials and the celebrity endorsements? There was Tom Brady pushing crypto on a buddy who's a bartender in Boston, still upset Brady left the Patriots. What's up? I'm getting into crypto. With FTX. You in? I believe I'm in, but still hate you. Understood. In the early days of 2022, crypto ads were everywhere, on TV, but also on bus stops and in fortune cookies. Crypto companies spent tens of millions of dollars on marketing. January and February may have been peak hype for the crypto industry, according to Molly White. She's a crypto skeptic and a fellow at Harvard who runs the site Web3 is going just great. Prices had hit all-time highs. People were making 
irrational amounts of money. The value of Bitcoin was almost four times what it is now, close to its all-time high. And the crypto industry was trying to grow its customer base to mainstream itself, as White puts it. On The Tonight Show, Paris Hilton talked to Jimmy Fallon about her wedding, about a trip she took to Burning Man, and then about how she's hawking NFTs, another kind of digital asset, basically kind of cartoony crypto art. And I want to give one to everyone in the audience. Everyone gets an NFT. Yes, everyone. Everyone gets an NFT tonight. Well, peak hype, as Molly White put it, didn't last long. Financial regulators started to crack down on crypto more than they had. And as the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates to fight high inflation, crypto prices tanked with stocks and other assets. And we saw the start of what's been called a crypto winter, a downturn that's gone on and on. You know, we've been living in the crypto winter for the better part of a year. Lee Reiners teaches cryptocurrency law at Duke University. And while the crypto crash hurt investors, especially people who bought in near the highs, it also revealed bigger systemic problems in the crypto industry. It really exposed a number of crypto firms who were, you know, overextended, had poor risk management, you know, or otherwise just engaging in fraudulent activity. Now, we'll get to FTX in a minute. But before that collapse, there was a string of failures, a pair of cryptocurrencies called Terra and Luna, the trading platform Voyager, a crypto hedge fund, BlockFi, Celsius. The list goes on and on. And according to Reiners, it highlights something troublesome about crypto. These firms are deeply interconnected. And so the moment you kind of have one problem somewhere in the crypto sector, it spreads very, very quickly. Which brings us to FTX. I promised we'd get to it. FTX is one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world, and at the start of 2022, it was valued at $32 billion. Now it's bankrupt. More than a million people are worried the money they put into it has disappeared, and the company's founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, has been charged with criminal fraud. Reiner says FTX's collapse was the biggest event in crypto's history, uh, history, he adds, that's, quote, replete with a lot of failures and scams and frauds and hacks. And now, people are wondering what could be the next domino to fall. Binance is the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, and after a recent series of panic-driven withdrawals, there's worry about its viability. Binance is pushing back against those fears and against crypto skepticism. And Molly White says the company has to. If people start to question the industry as a whole or crypto as an asset class, that is devastating for Binance. And so they are doing anything that they can to prevent that from happening. It's disorienting to look around the world of crypto today to see how much has changed. I think crypto would be lucky if all they were was set back by a couple of years. True believers expect Bitcoin will bounce back and this crypto winter will thaw eventually. But White says for people who were never crypto enthusiasts, who maybe saw an ad or felt this fear of missing out, it's a different story, especially after the collapse of FTX, after so much money just vanished. I think people are starting to think of crypto as, you know, this big scam that they would not want anything to do with. And that poses an existential problem for crypto, White says, because for crypto to work, it requires an ever larger stream of people to keep buying it. David Gura. NPR News, New York. Time is running out for coral reefs as the climate changes. That has scientists searching for super corals. Those are the few that can endure hotter temperatures. 
According to new research, that ability to survive isn't just about the corals, but also their roommates. NPR's Lauren Summer has more. There is a lot of relationship drama happening on coral reefs. Not among all the fish and marine life, but inside the corals themselves. It's a really complex ecosystem inside of each coral animal. Kate Quigley is a research scientist at James Cook University and the Mindaroo Foundation in Australia. She says corals have algae living inside them, almost like renters in an apartment building. Those algae make food for the corals, and in exchange, they get a free place to live. So, you know, there's this nice symbiosis that goes on, and that's really the powerhouse of the reef. But that relationship starts breaking down when the oceans heat up, which is happening more and more with climate change. The algae gets stressed. They are then giving off toxins, and then the coral is also suffering on its part. So the corals kick the algae out. It's known as coral bleaching when they turn a ghostly white color. Without their roomies making food, corals can die this way. But not all of them. Quigley and her colleagues found a few spots on the Great Barrier Reef where some corals survived. So these reefs were just really cooking, but for some reason, they were resilient. There were two reasons, actually, as Quigley and her colleagues published in the journal Science Advances. First, those corals had algae that were especially resistant to heat. And second, after they lost some of their algae, those corals did a better job of getting new ones. They basically found new tenants fast. It really helps to identify reefs that we really need to make sure we're protecting, right? Those resilient reefs, those reefs that are naturally good at surviving, we need to make sure that we're releasing them of other pressures. But not all corals can become more resilient by switching to heat-resistant algae. And that means the world's reefs will change dramatically, says Lupita Ruiz-Jones, an assistant professor at Chaminade University of Honolulu. Even if we could engineer some super-duper coral, there might be just a few species, right, that would live in that future world. And that's, I think, the really sad part for me is just imagining this world where we just have much less beauty in the water. Even the most resilient corals probably can't withstand continued climate change, she says. The only real fix is up to humans and switching the world off burning fossil fuels. Lauren Summer, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Stocks have got a year-end rally going. The Dow grew by a full percent today, 345 points to close at 33,221. S&P added one and three quarters percent to close at 3849. The Nasdaq grew by more than two and a half percent to settle at 10,478. It's 419. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. Travel chaos at Southwest Airlines is still causing issues at Logan Airport. According to the flight tracking website FlightAware, 35 flights at Logan have been canceled today. 26 are Southwest flights. That's three-quarters of the airline's daily schedule from Boston. Across the country, the airline has canceled over 2,300 flights today due to bad weather and problems with its scheduling software. Marketplace has business details coming up at 6.30. This is WBUR. Saturday is your last chance to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
When you need a break from the hustle of the holidays, we'll be here with news, stories, and interesting conversations. Earbuds in, 90.9 WBUR on. Thanks a lot for listening. After another unseasonably mild day today, we should have clear skies tonight down around the mid-30s, and then even milder weather tomorrow. Sunny up around 56. Saturday, the final day of the year, mainly cloudy but still mild in the mid-50s. A chance of rain sometime after 5 o'clock. And then maybe some showers New Year's Eve, about 50 for a low New Year's Day, partly sunny with highs in the mid-50s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized program based in psychology to help people understand their motivations, change their habits, and lead healthier lives. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Have you ever saved the front page of the newspaper as a memento of an important moment or maybe you clip coupons and recipes? Well, in three of Alabama's largest cities, the printing presses will stop rolling early next year. That'll spell the end of the Birmingham News, the Huntsville Times, and Mobile's press register as they go all digital. It's part of a national trend in local journalism, one that has some Birmingham subscribers worried they'll be left behind. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. It's gotten harder to buy a copy of the Birmingham News, but you can find the latest edition hanging from a spindle at the public library downtown. And a lot of people have read it. Look at this spaghetti sauce on the side over there. Cheryl Wheeler-Stewart points out food stains splattered on the front page. She's a former editor and reporter who spent nearly two decades working for the Birmingham News. Front page used to be that place that was... I guess you could say sacred, to pick up that Sunday paper, open it up, and see your name at the top. You know, that's, that was, I mean, it was just special. You know. Stewart says the move to digital only is a loss for the community. It's just not a good thing. I think a metropolitan city, Birmingham is on the move. I think a city like Birmingham needs a printed newspaper. Ten years ago, the Birmingham News and sister papers in Huntsville and Mobile went from publishing daily down to three times a week. Even that will end after February 26th, after parent company Alabama Media Group announced it will permanently stop the presses. While Stewart is sad to see the end of the print era, she acknowledges that even she now mostly gets her news from the paper's digital site, AL.com. Alabama Media Group President Tom Bates says that's where the audience is. The growth on the digital side for us has been extraordinary. And so if our job is to get out important stories, we need to get them out the way that people want to receive them. Bates says a decade ago, the combined daily circulation for the Birmingham News, the Huntsville Times, and the Mobile Press Register was about 260,000. Now, it's down to roughly 30,000, he says, compared to AL.com's daily reach of about a million people a day. Longtime journalists in the newsroom saw this day coming. You know, I mourned the newspaper a dozen years ago, frankly. 
John Archibald is a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for AL.com and has been with the Birmingham News since 1986. Sitting outside a local coffee shop, Archibald says he hardly ever sees the print edition anymore. It might sound like heresy for an old newspaper man, but he says that's the future of journalism. Well, I, you know, I have nostalgia for print, and I love the newspaper. It's not the paper that I love. It's the notion of going out and covering news that people need to know. What's happening in Alabama is where local papers have been headed for a while, says Penny Muse Abernathy with the Local News Initiative at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. It is part of a whole progression as we've seen the diminishment of daily newspapers over the past two decades. Abernathy is the author of annual reports on the state of local news around the nation. The 2022 report found that at least one in five of the 100 largest newspapers in the country is now publishing two or fewer times a week in a print edition. As papers disappear, Abernathy says the question is whether digital publications can play the same role in civic life that newspapers traditionally have. And I think that's really what you're dealing with is what is the relevance of these papers in a digital age. People have been reading the Birmingham News since the late 1800s. Mayor Randall Woodfin says it will be an adjustment no longer having it. It'll be a shock to the system. At age 41, Woodfin is a digital-first news consumer, but he knows not everyone is wired that way. We embrace the innovation. I would just hope we still find a way to communicate with every generation. I think over this last decade, I've received my news more digitally anyway, so I was able to brace. Uh, I would be, for those who haven't braced and still depend on those three days, I'm concerned. She called my stepmom right here in front of you to see what she says. Let's do it. He dials up Yvonne Fluker Woodfin, who steadfastly clips and collects newspaper articles about her stepson. Hello. Hello, young lady. Hey, Dallas, how are you? Things are good. What about yourself? Oh, doing well, pretty good, thank you. I wanted to talk to you about the newspaper. Are you aware that they're going away from all print? How do you feel about that? Well, I think that will make a lot of people not be aware of what's going on. Access is a concern. In the pandemic, public schools here found that about one in five families had limited or no internet access. Still, you don't see newspapers like you used to, scattered around tables at the coffee shop or local lunch counter. To hear how longtime Birmingham News subscribers are reacting, I stopped by the lunch buffet at the American Legion in Homewood, a close-in suburb. We call this our government in exile table back here. Al Lapeer is a former head of the Alabama Democratic Party. He's sitting at a long table of politicos who get together every Wednesday. Lapeer says he's really not surprised that the newspaper's days are numbered. I noticed a few years ago, even you bought the Birmingham News on a Saturday or a Sunday, everything you saw on their, their media site the next the day before was there, so why get it? But across the table, retired political scientist Natalie Davis defends the paper. She still subscribes and worries about what will be lost when it's gone. The newspaper is probably the only thing left where if everybody reads the story in the same way and gets the same facts, then you have a baseline. And that, that will go away. And it's gone. It's gone probably now. But I mean, that's what newspapers do. 
Retired veterinarian Chandler McGee stops by the table. He's 84 and says the Birmingham News has been a lifeline. One of the joys of my life is reading the newspaper. He lives in a retirement community where he says few residents get news online. I think it means, especially for senior citizens, that we're going to be cut off from what's happening in our city and our state. Alabama Media Group executives say that's not their intent and believe everyone in the three metro areas they serve should have a way to access their free content online, whether on a computer or smartphone. AL.com columnist Roy Johnson came to Birmingham in 2015. He'd been a longtime sports writer at Sports Illustrated and the New York Times and various national magazines, some of which are no longer in publication. I really have lived a life that represents the evolution of the media industry. He says the distribution method might have changed, but the mission remains. You know, one of these days we're going to have to explain to our grandkids why we put words on a piece of paper, balled it up, rolled it up, put it in a car or truck, drove it around and threw it on people's driveway, and that's how they got their news. I said, for them, it'll be like the Pony Express to us. Johnson's advice to longtime print readers, this is the digital age, so come along. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Birmingham. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The Brazilian soccer star Pele, the only player to win the World Cup three times, died today at the age of 82. His lasting impact on the game coming up. In sports, Celtics could be without head coach Joe Mazzula for a second straight game tonight. He suffered abrasions to his corneas during a recent pickup basketball game. The team says it's not certain whether Mazzula can lead the team for the 7.30 matchup t- uh, tonight at the Garden against the Clippers. Celtics assistant coach Damon Stoudemire stepped in to the role Tuesday for the win over the Rockets. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about giving a modest contribution that creates stories and conversations that make your world bigger. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of stock. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. Roads have reopened in Buffalo, New York, but authorities there are continuing to search for people who may have died during the massive snowstorm that hit the area. A driving ban for the city was lifted early this morning. Erie County Executive Mark Polonkars says it's taken a lot of work to get to this point. It's been a lot of work. It's been a lot of effort, a lot of hours, not a whole lot of sleep. And uh, we need to focus on recovery and getting our community back to where it was and stronger. At least 39 deaths in western New York have been reported from the blizzard, and most of them occurred in Buffalo. Polonkar says some people still remain missing. 
With the U.S. now among the countries that have moved to mandate COVID-19 tests for passengers arriving from China, President Biden is wrapping up the year with trade relations that remain strained. NPR's Asma Khalid has our story. Biden's trade chief, Catherine Tai, recently told the Council on Foreign Relations that the United States needs new thinking to counter China. We need a new playbook on China that serves our interests. And we will continue to press the PRC on its state-centered and non-market trade practices. The Biden administration has insisted that trade ought to be a force for good for ordinary American workers. But it has yet to articulate what this new playbook would look like. It has kept many Trump-era tariffs in place and suggested recently that it has no immediate plans to remove the steel and aluminum tariffs in particular. Asma Khalid, NPR News. International soccer star Pele has died. He was 82 years old. Pele helped to lead Brazil to three World Cup trophies, which made him the only player to ever win three titles. The International Olympic Committee named him the Athlete of the Century in 1999. Pele had been in the hospital for the past month where he was being treated for colon cancer. In announcing his death, his daughter said that everything his family is is thanks to Pele. Stocks were up on Wall Street today. The Dow finished up 345 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston's COVID test positivity rate is now at 11 percent. That's according to new data released by the city. More than 100 people per day in Boston are testing positive for the illness. The city's goal is to remain below about 70. Public health officials are warning of a potential increase in COVID and other respiratory illnesses following the holidays. An investigation by two U.S. House committees has found fault with Cambridge-based drug maker Biogen and the Food and Drug Administration. The committee's reports released today concluded the FDA failed to follow its typical procedures when it approved Biogen's Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm. It also says Biogen wrongly developed an aggressive plan to market the drug, despite concerns over its efficacy, safety, and affordability. The FDA says the approval was based on a scientific evaluation, and it started making changes to its processes based on the committee's recommendations. Biogen says it stands by its actions. A 15-year battle over plans to build a wood-burning power plant in Springfield has entered a new stage. The owner of the proposed biomass facility is suing the state. It's upset the state revoked a key permit needed for the project to move forward. Here's WBR's Miriam Wasser. The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection originally issued an air quality permit for the facility in 2012. But the state canceled that permit nine years later, citing construction delays and public health concerns. And a state appellate board upheld that decision in November. But the project's developer isn't giving up. The Palmer Renewable Energy Company filed a lawsuit in Suffolk Superior Court this week challenging the decision to revoke the permit. The state declined to comment, and company lawyers couldn't be reached. But in a court file, the company said it stands to lose $11 million it's already invested if it can't build the plant. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. For the first time since May, no part of the state has moderate drought conditions. The U.S. Drought Monitor says just over half the state is considered abnormally dry. That is the least severe category of drought. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Tonight should be clear, not too cold, about 36 degrees. Tomorrow, sun's back, along with even milder temperatures, about 56 degrees. Then the nice temperatures stick around for the holiday weekend as well. Could have clouds on Saturday, maybe rain after 5 p.m. 
The chance of showers New Year's Eve down around 50 for a low. Then on Sunday, January 1st, sunshine breaks through some of the clouds in the mid-50s throughout the weekend. 54 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. It used to be big news when an automaker announced a single new manufacturing plant in the U.S. But this year, automakers announced a tremendous number of factories, especially ones that build the massive batteries for electric vehicles. NPR's Camila Dominoski says we should call this the year of the battery plant announcement. She joins us now. Hey, Camila. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so the year of the battery plant announcement. Tell us why. I know it's not super <laughs> catchy, but there were genuinely so many of these announcements this year, it became hard to keep track of them all. It's part of the massive pivot that automakers are doing toward electric vehicles. So you have big names like GM and Hyundai. You have battery makers like Panasonic and LG. You've got a bunch of upstart companies that people probably won't recognize the names of. You've got battery companies from China and Japan and Norway, and they are all announcing projects to build batteries in the U.S., including battery assembly lines, the electric vehicle factories put batteries into vehicles, even battery recycling. So the think tank Atlas Public Policy tallied it all up, and for this year, announced just in 2022, there were $73 billion worth of investment in U.S.-based Wow. Plans. Again, just a few years ago, one or two billion was a huge deal. So the, yeah, this is an explosion. An explosion. Okay, where exactly are these plants going to be built? A lot of them are going in the southeast in what people are starting to call the battery belt. It's Georgia, South Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee. But it is actually bigger than that. Tom Taylor is with Atlas Public Policy, the group that tallied this up. He says there are announcements across the country. In some states, these are, you know, some of the largest, if not the largest, economic development projects in the state's history. And so that's true, not just in South Carolina, there in that belt, but in Kansas, in Indiana. Okay, so this all sounds really great and exciting. So what's the catch here? Is there a catch? Well, there are kind of two catches. One is these haven't been built yet. Right? These are announcements. And it's a lot easier to hit publish on a press release than to actually build these giant factory projects. Mm -hmm. And just to illustrate that, General Motors CEO Mary Barra, you know, General Motors has a plant that is up and running now in Ohio. She still had to go on the defensive with unhappy investors and explain why it wasn't producing as quickly as expected. Let's step back and recognize that the Ohio plant is the size of 30 football fields and it will employ over a thousand people. Making sure we had all our people there and trained has taken a little longer than expected. 
So again, this plant did open still some hiccups. So, you know, any number of CEOs might have taking a little longer than expected speeches to give in the next few years. Never count your batteries until your production line is operational. I think that's how the old saying goes, right? <laughs> the second catch here in some people's point of view is the billions of dollars involved include a lot of taxpayer money. States and local governments are throwing incentives at companies to try to attract the projects to get the jobs to their area. Area. And certainly critics say some of them are offering too much money for what they're getting. Well, the federal government's also trying to encourage these projects, right? Like how much of a role did that play in this burst of investment? Definitely a factor. Lots of companies have mentioned it. But also some of those incentives were only passed this summer, meaning we should expect those impacts from those incentives to keep playing out well into next year. I mean, maybe I actually jumped the gun in calling 2022 the year of the battery plant announcement. There might be more to come. <laughs> we'll have to check back in with you at the end of next year. That is NPR's Camila Dominoski. Thank you, Camila. Thank you. The soccer star Pele has died. He was the sport's global face for decades. His skill and artistry thrilled fans all over the world. Pele got a start from humble beginnings. He was born to a poor family in rural Brazil in 1940. But by the time he was 17, he was a World Cup legend, scoring three goals in the 1958 final. And when he scored his last World Cup goal in 1970 for his third title, Pele was the greatest ever. Rivalino, watch Pele now. What a beautiful goal for Pelé, El Rey Pelé, 100 goals for Brazil in World Cup competitions and Brazil take this one nothing. The 82-year-old Pelé died today of complications from colon cancer in Sao Paulo. Catherine Osborne has this remembrance from Rio de Janeiro. It was in one of the first televised World Cups in 1958 that a young Brazilian striker debuted to thrilled audiences. 17-year-old Pele coming away with it. What a master this boy is at 17. In the final game of that tournament, Pele flicked the ball high over his defender's head and smashed it into the net. He headed in another goal for a victory. At the time, Brazil's economy was booming, and the team's exuberance became a symbol of the country itself, says sports journalist Marcelo Barreto. The whole world cares about football, and the biggest footballer was Brazilian. I think we related to Pelé because of his creativity. During three World Cup titles and over 1,200 goals in his career, Pelé became known for his flair and unpredictability. He would blow past opponents dribbling the ball off their shins. He was also a playmaker and one early pioneer of the bicycle kick, a leap upward at an airborne ball to rocket it backwards. He was named the athlete of the century in a century that had, for example, Muhammad Ali by a French magazine. He could run 100 meters in like 11 seconds. He could kick with the right foot and the left foot. It was like his strength was at the service of the beauty of the game. Pele was born Edson Aranches de Nascimento in southeast Brazil, where he grew up watching his father play professionally, while Pele played in the street, where he earned his nickname, then in youth leagues. At the gym at Santos, the club near Sao Paulo where he played, he added judo and karate to workouts. His teammate Mingalvio Figueiredo said most players that talented didn't worry so much about physical conditioning. But Pele ran to the front of the line to do laps around the field. He himself said in an interview to CNN, If you be you know, focused, if you have a good health, nobody gonna stop you. Pele was also devoted to spreading the image of soccer's power to transcend national borders. One of the most famous photos in sports history is of his embrace of English defender Bobby Moore at the 1970 World Cup. He attracted fans across the world. 
And in the late 70s, Pele played for the New York City Cosmos, boosting American interest in the game. On the day he retired, he told a packed stadium he was upbeat. But even as he championed the idea of soccer as a unifier, Pele's life intertwined with racial and political divides at home. One of his biographers, Angelica Bashti, said after Brazil lost the 1950 World Cup with a black goalkeeper, a narrative spread that black players were unreliable. Until the 1958 victory, when Pele began to symbolize black players as talent. Even so, she said, black activists would later criticize him for playing down racism in Brazil. He faced other criticism for fighting against legally recognizing one of his daughters. He often responded saying Pele, the player, was separate from Edson, the man, who was flawed. Barreto says today, Brazilians increasingly judge sports heroes for the political implications of their actions. We are slowly beginning to understand that it's not only soccer, that soccer is not separated from our society, from our life. Still, he says, in terms of athleticism, Pele continues for many Brazilians to represent the country's capacity for greatness. For NPR News, I'm Catherine Osborne in Rio de Janeiro. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. New York Congressman-elect George Santos faces growing public outrage and questions from prosecutors about lies that he told before winning office last month. The Republican, who misled voters about much of his life story, is slated to be sworn in at the Capitol next week. But a source has confirmed to NPR that the U.S. Attorney's Office is now reviewing Santos's case. NPR's Brian Mann reports. George Santos has acknowledged inventing or embellishing huge chunks of his official biography during the campaign on Long Island. He lied about his career and education, claimed falsely his family escaped the Holocaust, and said he owns valuable real estate holdings, which isn't true. But in interviews this week, Santos has been defiant, blaming the scandal on liberal media. Here he is speaking with WABC Radio. To go out there and say I'm some fictional character that showed up and ran, and now I'm a Russian asset, and this is not journalism. Santos says he broke no laws, but a source tells NPR the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn is now looking into Santos's finances. This morning, protesters gathered on Long Island. We demand accountability. Diane Kaplan is a Democratic state senator who represents part of New York's 3rd Congressional District. She asked where Santos got $700,000 he loaned his campaign. George Santos must be investigated by all appropriate authorities, particularly surrounding his shady business dealings and his mystery millions that seem to have appeared... Overnight. Here's why Santos's money is drawing so much scrutiny. As recently as 2020, the Republican was describing himself in campaign filings as cash poor. He's acknowledged leaving significant debts unpaid. But in a federal financial disclosure document covering 2021 and 2022, Santos said his business, called the Devalder Organization, had begun producing millions of dollars in revenue and assets, some of which Santos says he loaned his political campaign. Here he is again on WABC Radio. 
That is the money of that I paid myself through my company, the Boulder Organization. Santos says all his financial dealings were legal, but Nassau County's Republican District Attorney Ann Donnelly has also announced a probe to determine whether any of Santos's behavior violated the law. If a crime was committed in this county, we will prosecute it, Donnelly said. All of this has left voters on Long Island, including Howard Shaw, confused and angry. This is this is not embellishing. This is outright lying financially, professionally, personally. Another voter, Janice Ardilla, agrees and says it's outrageous. The political system allowed Santos to win a seat in Congress without more vetting. I just think it's such crap. Like teachers have to like present so much information in order to like get their license. And this guy is just going to lie and still be able to go into Congress. I think it's stupid. <laughs> Asked whether Santos could do anything to regain her trust, Ardilla answered this way. Not go. Give up your seat and let somebody else who's more qualified and knows actually what they're talking about to go in your place. The Santos scandal has tarnished what was a bright spot for Republicans in the midterm elections. The GOP stumbled nationally last month, but managed to build a razor-thin House majority in part because of victories here in New York. Republican leaders in Washington have been silent so far about Santos's lies. If he is forced to step aside, it would trigger a special election in a fiercely competitive district. Brian Mann, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, NPR shares its favorite musical moments from 2022. A reminder, if you're coming toward Boston on the Turnpike, there is a two-mile backup on the Mass Pike eastbound. It starts before 128 and continues into Newton. The right-hand lane of the pike is closed in Auburndale. This morning, a dump truck with its lift in the upward position struck the Auburn Street Bridge. The Department of Transportation says a beam on the bridge was damaged. It plans to conduct further inspections this evening. State transportation crews are warned Warning of potential traffic delays tonight in two area highways. Crews will be making road repairs on 93 northbound between Somerville and Stoneham. Also on Route 95 north from Waltham to Lexington. They'll be closing lanes from 9 tonight until 4 tomorrow morning. 52 degrees now in the Boston area at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts. Passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. From Robert Bork's consumer harm to Lena Khan's democratic harm, what ideas drive the government's approach to antitrust regulation? Forty years ago, we chose the wrong path, in my view. Following the misguided philosophy of people like Robert Bork and pull back on enforcing laws to promote competition. Our special series, More Than Money, continues on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. This week, we're revisiting some of the fun, creative distractions from the news that we featured on the show over the last year. And today, we're going to listen back to some of the more musical moments. First, our co-host, Juana Summers, and I learned about a kitchen playlist that 
kind of blew our minds. Noah Conk is a designer based in San Francisco, and to share his recipe for kimchi fried rice, he put together a three-hour-long 51-song playlist, with each song title describing a specific ingredient, measurement, or instruction. I basically went through searching for the word that I needed or a combination of words. The first word he needed, and the place most recipes start, was a song called Ingredients. I just found out a new ingredient. Then there's a song called Three. Next, a tune called Tablespoons. And then Unsalted Butter. Unsalted Butter. Three tablespoons of unsalted butter you get, or, or maybe you taste the idea now? <laughs> Conk says he picked kimchi fried rice because it is a favorite comfort food of his. Growing up, I never really ate too much Korean food because I'm an adoptee. But that changed in college. That was my opportunity of meeting other Korean, what we call Korean Korean people. Now, the original playlist did not include the song Butter by South Korean boy band BTS. <laughs> Smooth like butter, like criminal. I realized, I was like, how could I forget the butter song like in a kimchi fried rice recipe playlist? He's since updated that playlist to correct that oversight. After the songs top off with sesame seeds, the playlist ends with the song Winner's Circle by Anderson Pack. You made it to the end and you're in the winner's circle. You're part of this collective of people who can make kimchi fried rice from a playlist. And it's also like a subtle nod to Anderson Pack being uh, Korean. So if you're looking for a kitchen project this weekend, maybe ditch those cookbooks and just turn up the music. For decades, companies have also made playlists for shopping. Guest host Adrian Florido and I went through one man's quest to fill a gap in retail playlist history. It was the blistering summer of 1992 in Dallas, Texas. Michael Bice had just graduated from college and he needed a job. He saw an ad in the paper for his local Gap store. You know, it was just seasonal sales. I needed something. Bice got the job, but he found something unexpected when he started. That very first day, immediately I was hit with the music. Rosala, Love Breakdown. That was the one that got me. Bice is talking about the music that was playing over the speakers of that Dallas Gap store as the customers shopped. He had an ear for music. He was a DJ in college. But this carefully crafted mix of music was like nothing he'd heard before. You know, classic R&B, and then it's followed by modern pop song, and then followed by acid jazz, and then trip hop or something. That music opened up Bice's world. And that first job turned into 15 years at Gap. And so it's like I found a career that I probably wouldn't have stayed if it hadn't been as fun being there and listening. I still have some of the best memories being in that store and learning how to do it all on my own. And the music brings all of it up. Vice would collect the paper playlists that were posted in his break room each month and in Gap break rooms all across the country. The mixes were curated by an outside company Gap had hired. But to Bice, they were special, not only because the music was good, they also represented what was happening beyond the doors of Gap stores. The tapes did seem to reflect what was going on in the country. There was a lot of experimentation at the beginning of the 90s. Then you could, I mean, literally feel the change. And September 11th, 2001, 
It was very, very somber. And you know, that's how the country was, and we felt it. A career change and a move meant he lost that stash of lists until 2010, when he found... In the flap of a folder, there are about 24 Gab playlists. The hunt was on. Vice wanted to find every playlist from his years at Gap, 1992 to 2006. He started a blog where he posted the playlists he found and some that he simply remembered. In January of 2017, I had an email from a guy in California, and he said, I think I have what you need. That former employee had playlists from 1993 through 2000, and the responses are still rolling in. Vice only has a few incomplete years of music left to find. It's almost like doing a service because I have so many people tell me how much they enjoy it. And so, you know, even if I find 100% of everything I want, I'm, I'm always going to continue doing this. All right, finally, let's revisit another memorable music moment. And anyone who has spent time with Elsa will understand why this was one of your favorites, Elsa. <laughs> you just love to talk about well, you know what? Let's just listen. You can say basically anything to a smart speaker. You can tell it to set an alarm. Alarm set for 8.30 a.m. tomorrow. You can ask it what the weather will be. You can expect a high of 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Or you can even ask it something, you know, really, really silly. Alexa, play poop. That is BuzzFeed reporter Katie Natopoulos. Her five-year-old son recently discovered that if you tell the smart speaker to play poopy diaper, it will do just that. I got I mean, I laughed hysterically. That song is called Poopy Diaper. It's really, like, serious musically. Natopolis found that there are actually a whole bunch of musicians making poop-themed songs. And although there's no way to prove it, she's pretty sure she knows who their most avid listeners are. Children yelling potty words at smart speakers. Everyone loves poop, whether they admit it or not. Luckily, young people are young enough to not be ashamed to admit it. Well, Matt Farley is one of those musicians who loves poop. He learned that making songs with nonsensical lyrics about bodily functions was a recipe for success. The poop song was literally me on the piano singing the word poop for a minute and a half. Oh, poop, 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 poop. Topolis says musicians making poop songs got a big boost in streams once more people started buying Amazon's Alexa smart speaker. 90% of their plays was coming from Amazon Music. That's the clear link that this is being driven by Alexa rather than someone going into Spotify and typing in the words poop. Musician Matt Farley says in at least one case, families even want to hear poop songs live. Like one couple who brought their three-year-old son to a recent show. Specifically because he's a fan of my song Poop Into a Wormhole. Everyone's having a grand old time singing poop, poop, poop into a wormhole. If you want to find more of Matt Farley's music, just ask Alexa. Hey Alexa, turn it up. Thank you for listening, even during moments like this, to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at AJWS.org. And from Capital One, with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, N.A. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is 90.9 WBUR. Should have starlit skies tonight. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, sunny and mild again in the mid-50s. Saturday should be cloudy in the mid-50s again. Rain possible for the final hours of the year. Should gradually dry out on New Year's Day with some modest sunshine. Highs holding to the mid-50s. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The string of mysterious deaths of Russian oligarchs in 2022 continues into the last week of the year. The latest, a wealthy Russian businessman who reportedly has been critical of the Russian war in Ukraine, was found dead after he fell from a hotel terrace in India. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. We'll look at what may be behind the deaths coming up. Also, inflation invaded every waking moment of the past year, but just how bad was it? Also, the powerful artificial intelligence has been on display, full display, in fact, on social media. Those systems are going to be more and more a part of just how we navigate the world. We look at the impact AI is having on our lives. Coming up on WBUR, Wall Street rallies. We'll get the full picture ahead. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The Justice Department is suing one of the nation's largest wholesale distributors of opioids. The DOJ is accusing Amerisource Bergen of failing to report suspicious orders of opioids at pharmacies across the country. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports the civil lawsuit could expose the company to billions in penalties. Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta says Amerisource Bergen prioritized profits over its legal obligations and the well-being of Americans. The Justice Department complaint says the company failed to report suspicious orders of oxycodone and fentanyl from 2014 to the present at pharmacies in Florida, New Jersey, West Virginia, and Colorado. In some cases, authorities say the company likely knew its drugs were being sold in the parking lot for cash. Amerisource Bergen says the DOJ cherry-picked five sites out of thousands of pharmacies it serves as a distributor. The company says it conducted, quote, extensive due diligence. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. 
The U.S. military says a Chinese fighter plane intercepted a U.S. Air Force plane during a patrol over the South China Sea, risking collision. Both aircraft are fine, but NPR's Emily Feng reports the incident highlights the ongoing territorial tension in the region. The U.S.'s Indo-Pacific Command released video of the intercept showing a Chinese fighter pilot flying within 20 feet of a U.S. aircraft, then briefly overtaking it. The U.S. military called the maneuver unsafe in a statement. NPR's Emily Fang, migrant advocates are reacting this week to a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to extend the provisions of Title 42, the immigration policy set in motion during the pandemic, to quickly remove migrants at U.S. border crossings before they can seek asylum. Texas Public Radio's Carolina Cuellar files this report from McAllen, Texas. The Supreme Court says the policy stays until the case against Title 42 goes through the courts. Victor Cavazos helps people waiting in Mexico. I wasn't too surprised. The Texas and Louisiana really have been trying to keep Title 42 alive, and they're trying to make it permanent. These states say without the policy, which allows them to expel migrants without letting them request asylum, more people will try crossing. But Cavazos says the people at the border are in dire need of refuge. More people are here right now. Not necessarily because of Title 42, but because things are getting really bad. He says government instability, violence, and the war in Ukraine are just some of the reasons why people are fleeing. I'm Carolina Cuellar in McAllen. Applications for jobless benefits rose modestly last week, according to the Labor Department. Assigned to markets, the U.S. economy remains resilient. The Dow rose 345 points today. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A COVID-19 variant called XBB has become the dominant strain in the Northeast. The federal government has been tracking it for nearly two months. Tufts Medical Center epidemiologist Dr. Shira Daron says the variant has blossomed over the past week. She recommends people get a COVID booster shot if they haven't already. I certainly couldn't say the new booster is going to be X percent likely to protect you against XBB. We don't have data like that because we don't have efficacy data at all. Um, but what I can say is the new booster appears to help neutralize this new strain. Darone says it's common for new COVID strains to attain dominance as others wane, especially during the winter months. One lane on the Mass Turnpike eastbound in Newton remains closed. About 9.30 this morning, a dump truck was on the pike with its lift in the upright position. It struck the Auburn Street overpass in Auburndale. The lift was sheared off the truck and the impact damaged the beam on the bridge. The driver suffered minor injuries. Because of the lane restriction, there is now a two-mile backup on the pike eastbound. It starts just before Route 128. Federal prosecutors in Boston are seeking a six-year prison sentence for the mastermind of a nationwide college admissions fraud scheme. Rick Singer will be sentenced next week for racketeering and money laundering. He admitted he took millions from wealthy parents and paid bribes to school officials to get his clients' children admitted to college. In court filings this week, Singer's defense says he's taken responsibility for his actions and should serve no more than six months in prison or a year in home confinement. And bills that deal with revenge porn and teen sexting are beginning to move in the Senate's, uh, State Senate's Ways and Means Committee. The legislative session ends Tuesday. The teen sexting bill would create a new juvenile offense for unlawful possession or dissemination of sexually explicit materials. The so-called revenge porn bill would create a new 
criminal offense for distributing sexually explicit material without the subject's consent and increase fines from $1,000 to $5,000. In the forecast, 52 degrees now, pretty darn nice today. Should only fall to about 36 overnight tonight, starless skies tonight. Then tomorrow, even milder than today has been, about 56 degrees for a high sunshine once again. The warm weather should keep coming over the weekend, 55 degrees Saturday and Sunday. Cloudy skies Saturday, partly sunny on Sunday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. This recent headline might sound familiar. Russian oligarch dies after hotel fall. Sausage magnate Pavel Antov fell to his death in India on Christmas Eve. And he has a lot of company. At least a dozen Russian businessmen have died mysteriously in the last year. Some have toppled from windows, others tumbled downstairs or been struck with fatal illnesses. In fact, just two days before Antov's death, someone traveling with him died in the same hotel of an apparent heart attack. Julia Yaffe is a founding partner and Washington correspondent for the news site Puck, and her analysis of Russia has been a must-read ever since Putin invaded Ukraine. Julia, good to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Ari. I don't want to make light of a situation where people are dying, but it seems like a tough time to be an oligarch. The West wants to seize your yachts, and open Mm -hmm. windows are an existential threat. Yeah, you know... The West hasn't made it that easy for Russian oligarchs to peel off from Vladimir Putin. If anything, it has become even more dangerous domestically and abroad for Russian oligarchs to oppose Vladimir Putin, to speak out against him. And uh, Vladimir Putin seems to be making that very clear with a string of these coincidences. And if you talk to anybody who has ever worked in intelligence or the security services in America or in other countries, they'll tell you that coincidences like this have to be very carefully planned. Mm. How big are the air quotes around that word coincidences? Pretty big. In the case of Pavel Antov, the man who died in India, earlier this year, he denied posting an anti-war message on WhatsApp. Is criticism of Putin a common thread here? For some of them, it is. There were two men who were very high-ranking managers in the oil company Luke Oil, and it was one of the only Russian companies that in February of 2022 came out against the war while everybody else was quite silent. And then, you know, one after another, a couple of Luke Oil managers turned up dead. Mm. Again, these are things that might be coincidental. These might be natural deaths. Again, we don't know for sure, but we can be absolutely sure that people in the Russian business community are taking note and being extra, extra, extra careful now in terms of what they're saying about the war, about Putin, which they were already being careful before the war. But now I'm sure they're being doubly, triply so. I wondered about that, whether or not the Kremlin is responsible. Is it helpful for Putin to have people believe that if you speak out of turn, you might wind up dead? Absolutely. You have to understand that this is happening not in a vacuum. This is happening at a time when dissent has been criminalized. People have already received lengthy jail sentences for, quote unquote, delegitimizing the armed forces. People have received jail 
sentences for protesting the war, and these are regular people. And now this is what's happening to the kind of business elite. Pavel Antov, the man who died in India, was also a member of the, you know, quote unquote, elected officialdom of Russia. Right. He was a lawmaker. Exactly. So that also, you know, you need absolute unity in the ranks there. For for Putin, that's also very important, presenting an absolutely united front. You don't even have to prove that the Kremlin uh, was behind these deaths. Uh, you don't even have to prove that they were not suicides or not murder suicides. It is enough that the suspicion is there to make people shut their mouths and not criticize the Kremlin. What is the Kremlin line on these deaths? What do they typically say about them? They say that, you know, these were beloved family men. They were beloved colleagues and co-workers. And that is, it is deeply unfortunate that they met, you know, such an untimely death and that they will be greatly missed. And that whenever anybody suggests that there may have been foul play involved, they say that this has nothing to do with reality. It helps them that authorities in other countries, like in India or in Spain, where some of these deaths have taken place, say that while they're investigating, they've ruled certain things out, like foul play by the Russian mafia in Spain, or that they're investigating these things as a suicide rather than a homicide. It gives the Kremlin plausible deniability That's all they need. We should say this isn't pure speculation. There have been recent instances of Russia attempting to kill or successfully killing people it considers to be enemies, Alexander Litvinenko, Sergei Skripal, and others. Absolutely. This is (laughs) the Russian government has never stopped killing its enemies. Putin has been quite open about the fact that he believes that traitors deserve death. The other thing is that in uh, the 1990s, when capitalism came to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of communism, a lot of people involved in business were turning up dead. Business became a very dangerous profession. And Vladimir Putin constantly harkens back to those times as a warning. So I think it is also very important for Putin to make it look like You know, these aren't gangland murders, but coincidences. Anything other than the wild chaos of the 1990s to which he is supposed to be the stabilizing antithesis. That's Julia Yaffe of the news site Puck. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. Inflation. It seemed to invade every waking moment of 2022. But really, just how bad was it? Well, let's find out with NPR's Alina Seljuk and Stacey Vanek-Smith. Rise and shine and pay more. Every day you wake up, everything is a little more expensive. Right, Stacey? Alina, that is so bleak. Things are not that bad. There are plenty of prices that have also gone down. Oh, like what? Crypto? Well, yes, crypto, but a lot of other things too. In fact, I challenge you, Alina. Let's walk through a typical day look at how many prices have risen and how many prices have fallen and actually see what we're looking at here. And, and, loser buys the winner a drink. Ooh, you are on for that. Okay, <laughs> let's start with, good place to start, breakfast. My day obviously starts with this delicious coffee, which is 15% more expensive than last year. We can make some eggs. 
they are 49% more expensive. It's one of the biggest jumps out there because of a massive bird flu outbreak. Okay, good point, but I start my day with avocado toast. Avocados have gotten almost 45% cheaper because there was this big bumper crop. And you know, they are a superfood. Also bacon, which is not technically a superfood, but is super, got a little bit cheaper too. It's a good breakfast. No coffee for you, really? Well, I have been meaning to cut back on caffeine and rising prices feels like the perfect opportunity to make that happen. You know what you could call this, Lena? Is an inflation tunity. I will not be calling it that. Moving on from breakfast, time for work. Well, I'm really glad you said that because I am now zipping up my warm winter coat, which is 2% less expensive than it was last year. And I'm heading out to the car to drive to work. And speaking of cars, Alina, used cars got 3% less expensive because the extreme shortage of used cars kind of started to sort itself out. All right, all right. What about the gas for this car? Well, gas has been uh, declining. Sure, but at the moment, still 10% more expensive than last year. Which just gives us all a great excuse to take public transportation. That's 24% more expensive than last year. Well, wait, you're working from home, right? I mean, that's saving you time and money. I am working from home, and in fact, I'm sending you an email right now which says... Electricity, Stacy, costs 14% more this year. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm messaging you back to remind you that America got a raise this year, more than 5%. Sure, wages did grow, but if you account for inflation, we actually got a pay cut of almost 2%. That is true, but that's a general number. Some people did get bigger raises than that. And, and anyway, you know, it could be a good moment to rethink our work-life balance. Maybe we start clocking out when we we're supposed to and go spend time with friends and our families. And do what exactly? Going out is so much more expensive this year. Restaurant prices are up because of all kinds of costs, wages and food. Okay, well, you could just come on over. Lena, come over to my place and we'll hang out. Home sweet home. You know what's not sweet? Rent increases up 7% this year. <laughs> rent did not go up everywhere. There, there were definitely some places where rent went down. Like which places? Like the metaverse. Apparently, rent went down in... This is the dimension of imagination. The metaverse. The metaverse. Yes. Okay. Well, maybe we've been looking at data for too long. I hate to say it, Stacey. I think you owe me a drink. Okay. Well, let's, we can go, we should just go get a drink. Let's all agree to that. Let's just go <laughs> get a drink. We can go to happy hour. Stacey, happy hour costs 7% more now. Alina, you cannot, <laughs> don't take the happy out of happy hour I'm right sorry. now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I forgive you, Alina, because do you know something that is priceless? Oh, I feel like you're going to say friendship. Is it friendship? No. Oh, it's friendship. Yes. Yes. It's yes. Friendship. I was going to say friendship. It's We're friendship. doing it. The winner is friendship. You can't put a price on it. Stacey Vanek Smith, Alina Selyuk, NPR News.
This Sunday, Brazil inaugurates a new president, but he isn't new. It's Lula, the leftist ex-president who spent nearly two years in jail. On tomorrow's show, his spectacular political comeback. If you're not by the radio, try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Louisiana has one of the most restrictive abortion laws and one of the highest maternal death rates, which is far higher for black women. We'll hear from a woman who struggled to get care. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Stocks have got a year-end rally going. The Dow grew by a full percent today, 345 points to close at 33,221. S&P added one and three quarters percent to close at 38.49. The Nasdaq grew by more than two and a half percent to settle at 10,478. A Boston-based developer has filed plans to build a life sciences laboratory building on Washington Street in Boston's South End. The Drucker Company submitted documents yesterday that show the company wants to build a roughly 600,000-square-foot lab space. It will be constructed on two acres, where there's now a one-story building and parking lot. The new space would feature restaurants and retail space on the ground floor. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org cars. If you want to stay updated on upcoming WBOR events at City Space and get first crack at tickets, sign up for the WBOR events newsletter. Go to WBOR.org newsletters. Nice clear skies tonight in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, sunny and mild again in the mid-50s. Saturday should be cloudy in the mid-50s with rain possible for the final hours of the year. Should gradually dry out New Year's Day Sunday. Modest sunshine. Highs in the mid-50s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Louisiana has one of the most restrictive abortion bans in the country, and it's also one of the most dangerous states to be pregnant and to give birth, especially if you're black. As part of our Days and Weeks series, which looks at how laws restricting abortion are affecting people's lives, we have the story of one pregnant woman who struggled to get care and answers in post-Roe, Louisiana. And just a note, this story includes medical descriptions, including pain and blood loss. Rosemary Westwood with member station WWNO takes it from here. Caitlin Joshua found out she was pregnant in early August. She and her husband Landon live in Baton Rouge. They have a four-year-old daughter, and they were excited for a second baby. We thought we were going to be like two and done, like kind of getting it over with, you know. 
Caitlin was about six weeks along when she tried to make her first OBGYN appointment for the eight-week mark, similar to when she saw a doctor for her first pregnancy. But she was told she was going to have to wait over a month. They specifically said, like, we now no longer see women until they're at least 12 weeks. Caitlin remembers the woman on the phone saying it was because of Louisiana's new abortion ban. And they went into grave detail about this because there are so many women that have miscarriages in that first week, 12-week period. We can't be held liable for that, nor do we want to be investigated. And so you have to wait till the 12-week mark to even see if you're going to have a viable pregnancy. And then we see you. As doctors unconnected to the case explained to NPR, some physicians no longer want to be involved in miscarriage care because they fear being investigated and accused of providing an abortion. Under Louisiana's new law, a doctor could get up to 15 years in prison and lose their license for providing an abortion. And here's the miscarriage connection. The same procedures used in abortion are also sometimes used for miscarriage care. Doctors say this is creating a climate of fear. At a September meeting of the state health department, Dr. Joey Biggio, who leads maternal and fetal medicine at Louisiana's largest health system, said some OBGYN doctors are afraid to provide routine maternity care. Whether it's ectopic pregnancies, miscarriages, ruptured membranes, hemorrhage, many people are not going to provide the care that is needed for patients. Pregnancy can be dangerous, especially for Black women like Caitlin. Louisiana has among the highest rates of maternal death in the country, and the rates are far higher for Black women. There are many reasons for this, according to the CDC, including variation in quality health care, underlying chronic conditions, structural racism, and implicit bias. During her early weeks of pregnancy, Caitlin had symptoms she never had with her first child, mild cramping and bleeding. But without access to a doctor, there was no one to answer her questions. Then, when she was about 10 or 11 weeks pregnant, she started bleeding even more. Like clotting and so much tissue and just blood. The pain was terrible. Caitlin drove herself to Woman's Hospital. A nurse took her vitals, a doctor did an exam, and she got an ultrasound. Then a nurse gave her the news. The first thing she said was, you may be 10 or 11 weeks, but your your baby's just stopped growing. Like, it's measuring at seven, eight weeks when it should be 10 or 11. The nurse told Caitlin that it looked like she could be miscarrying, but they couldn't confirm it. Her discharge papers didn't mention the word. She was just told to rest, take warm baths, and follow up with her doctor at an appointment that was still over a week away. The nurse did say they'd be praying for her. Caitlin herself is Christian and goes to church every Sunday, but she says it felt insulting. Folks need answers, not prayers. And that's exactly what I was looking for in that moment. Woman's Hospital did not comment on Caitlin's experience, but told NPR later that how it treats miscarriages has not changed because of Louisiana's abortion law, and that first trimester bleeding does not necessarily indicate a patient is having a miscarriage. The next day, Caitlin felt even worse. Her husband Landon was worried. I was definitely afraid of what could happen, and, and my mind goes to the, to the words sometimes, maybe a, a, a situation where she wouldn't be here. By the evening, Caitlin was pacing her bathroom floor, bleeding and cramping, when she felt even more tissue come out. It literally felt like I had almost birthed a child. And so I was like, no, I have to go somewhere like now. So I asked my mother-in-law to watch my little girl, and I ran out the door. This time she went to a different hospital, Baton Rouge General in Prairieville. There, a security guard put her in a wheelchair. Her jeans were soaked through in blood. 
While she was getting an ultrasound, the tech told her she'd lost a lot of blood. A few hours later, a doctor arrived with the results. The doctor's first comment was to question whether Caitlin had even been pregnant. She came in and she said, well, it doesn't look like a baby. This looks like it was a cyst. And she was like, are you sure and positive you were pregnant? She says the question made her angry. Then the doctor said that if Caitlin was miscarrying, she should do what everyone else had already told her, go home and wait. But Caitlin wanted some kind of treatment, either a procedure called dilation and curatage to remove pregnancy tissue and help with the bleeding, or medication, which can help clear the uterus more quickly. I know, like, when women are having miscarriages, there are different procedures or different things that, you know, you guys can do to kind of help alleviate not just the pain, but, like, make this process go a little faster. And she was like, we're not going to do that. The doctor wouldn't refer Caitlin somewhere else or give her discharge papers that actually said she was having a miscarriage, what in medical terminology is called a spontaneous abortion. She stated that they're not going to put anywhere spontaneous abortion because that would then flag an investigation on them, on that staff, on the folks that did our work that night. According to her discharge papers, Caitlin was having vaginal bleeding. But in her medical records, which Caitlin got later from the hospital, staff did diagnose her with a spontaneous abortion. Sarah Zagorski is a spokeswoman with Louisiana Right to Life, which drafted Louisiana's abortion ban. She says the law does allow doctors to treat miscarriages. It looks like the fault is not with the law, but with a misinterpretation of the law. Baton Rouge General told NPR later it sympathized with Caitlin's pain and anxiety, but believed her treatment was appropriate. Over the next week, Caitlin continued to bleed heavily, and the pain was striking. You're, like, mourning the loss of you know, what would have been this new, you know, bright-eyed, sweet baby, but then also just so worried. Caitlin had another worry, too. And she wondered, given that Black women in the state face greater risks in pregnancy, whether her race had affected her care. I was just wondering if white women get turned away like this. It took weeks of waiting at home, but finally the miscarriage completed. But if she had been given a choice, Caitlin would have chosen care that made the experience faster, less painful, and less scary especially in a state like Louisiana, where four Black mothers die for every one white mother. This experience has made me see how Black women die. Like, this is how Black women are dying. The experience also stalled Caitlin and Landon's plans for more children. You know, I love my kid, and so, like, she constantly makes me want another her. But in this moment, and we've talked about this a lot on and off, like, in this moment, it's just too dangerous of a task to get pregnant in the state of Louisiana. I don't think it's worth, like, risking your life for a baby right now. Caitlin wonders how many other women in Louisiana are now feeling the same. For NPR News, I'm Rosemary Westwood in Baton Rouge. This story comes from NPR's partnership with WWNO and Kaiser Health News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports, the Celtics could be without head coach Joe Mazzulla for a second straight game tonight. He suffered abrasions to his corneas during a recent pickup basketball game. The team says it's uncertain whether he'll be at the Celts' 7.30 matchup against the Clippers at the Garden. Celtics assistant coach Damon Stoudemire stepped into the role for Tuesday's win over the Rockies. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies tonight in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, sunny and mild again. Temperatures in the mid-50s, where they should stay over the weekend. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. As you support organizations that have deep meaning in your life and in our community, please make a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund will become something much bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it'll help us all. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Wilman. Democrats continue to call for the resignation of Long Island Congressman-elect George Santos after he admitted to lying about his professional resume, his schooling, and his personal background during the fall campaign. Local and federal prosecutors are also looking into public filings by Santos. During an event today, Democratic State Assembly member Charles Levine echoed calls for Santos to step down. I don't want to be represented by any clown in local government, in state government, but especially not in our nation's capital. Santos says he's not a criminal and he's only guilty of embellishing his record. The U.S. Census Bureau is releasing an updated list of areas that it classifies as urban based on the national 2020 headcount. As NPR's Hansi Lewong reports, the Bureau's new list of the country's urban areas could affect how much government money some communities get. For an area to be urban these days, the Census Bureau says it has to have at least 2,000 housing units or 5,000 people living in it. That's a change from a decade ago when an urban area could have as few as 2,500 people. After the 2020 census, the Bureau had proposed a higher bar of 10,000 people for areas to be declared urban, but some data users were concerned it would have made it harder to compare statistics about smaller communities over time. Still, the Bureau says revisiting what technically makes an area urban, as well as rural, helps make sure its definitions are useful, as people continue to change where and how closely together they live. Hansi Luang, NPR News, Washington. In Arizona, a recount of votes from the November election has confirmed that Democrat Chris Mays defeated Republican Abraham Hamada in the Arizona Attorney General's race. The race was one of the closest in the state's history. May finished just 280 votes ahead of Hamada. Stocks were up today on Wall Street. The Dow finished up 345 points. The Nasdaq rose by 264 points. The S&P 500 closed up 66 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts housing officials say they will soon lack the money to provide emergency housing to families in need. The Department of Housing and Community Development has sent a letter to state lawmakers. It says funding for new emergency shelters will run out within 90 days unless lawmakers provide more money. The department says without new funding, it will operate its current shelter network, but will not be able to place new families in housing. Governor Charlie Baker says the state is dealing with an influx of more than 11,000 migrants in the state this year. Governor-elect Maura Healey has named her chief legal counsel. Paige Scott Reed will be the first black woman appointed to the post. Reed has served as general counsel for the State Department of Transportation and for the MBTA. She says she is committed to equity and protecting people's rights. Could be another year before we see recommendations for changes to the Massachusetts state seal. 
House lawmakers are considering a bill to give a commission on the topic 11 more months to work. The panel has missed several deadlines since it was created last year. At issue is the imagery of an arm and a sword that hang over the head of a Native American. It features Latin words that mean, by the sword we seek peace, but peace only under liberty. Supporters of changing the seal say the imagery is demeaning to Native Americans. Just days after we had sub-freezing weather, temperatures are expected to climb into the mid-50s again tomorrow and this weekend. Reporter Jenny Ahrens explains rising temperatures this time of year can have a big impact on the region's forests. The senior associate dean of Yale's forest school, Dr. Mark Ashton, says a warming winter creates more extreme conditions, which is bad for New England's trees. That's pushing our forest to new, really unforeseen limits. It's getting more variable, more unpredictable. And it's the unpredictability of the extremes that make our forests much more susceptible to all sorts of things. Like droughts and invasive insects such as the spongy moth caterpillar and emerald ash borer. Dr. Ashton says winters are crucial for New England forests because they function as cleansing events, killing off damaging insects. But a study earlier this year from researchers in Massachusetts found that New England is warming faster on average than the rest of the world. And of all the seasons, temperatures in the winter are rising the most. For New England News Collaborative, I'm Jenny Ahrens. Tonight should be clear, not too cool, about 36 degrees. Tomorrow, sun's back, along with even milder temperatures, about 56. Then nice temperatures stick around for the holiday weekend. We could have clouds Saturday, maybe rain after 5 p.m. The chance of shower is New Year's Eve, down around 50 for the low. Then Sunday, January 1st, sunshine breaks through some of the clouds in the mid-50s throughout the weekend. This is WBUR, 48 degrees now at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, providing an online evaluation and the tools to help people lead healthier lives through behavior change. More information at Noom, N-O-O-M.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Friends are morphing into fairy princesses and astronauts. TV scripts, poetry, and cover letters are being written by a bot that sounds a whole lot like a real human. Artificial intelligence is having a moment with people using new tools to show off just how advanced AI has gotten. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, these tools are showcasing the power and the peril of the current state of AI. There are two crazes taking the internet by storm right now. The first is an image generator called Lenza. You upload a bunch of selfies to the app, and it spits out a batch of hyper-realistic avatars. You in space. You as an anime character. All of them have one thing in common. As one person put it on Twitter, you but 20% hotter. Oren Etzioni runs the Seattle-based Allen Institute for AI. They've really taken this technology and they tied it with people's ego and their vanity. And that combination has proven to be almost irresistible. The second tool causing lots of buzz is called ChatGPT. It's a bot that can hold a conversation or answer questions a lot like a human. You ask it something and it starts responding in a way that can freak you out pretty fast. I asked it to place a Chipotle order in the speaking style of Donald Trump, and it said, quote, All right, folks, let me tell you, this Chipotle order is going to be huge. The best Chipotle order you've ever seen. Believe me, we're talking about a big, beautiful burrito bowl. It went on from there. With such a gift for language, it did make me wonder, 
Will ChatGPT one day replace me? It's pretty funny, right? Are you going to be out of a job? Of course, I'm probably going to be out of a job because you don't really need me. You can just take those questions, feed them into ChatGPT, and it'll give you pretty plausible answers. It may seem like AI has all of a sudden gotten really, really good, but Etzioni likes to say AI's overnight success has been 50 years in the making. Some of the most advanced AI tools are being developed secretly by tech giants like Google and Facebook. The companies aren't ready to publicly release them, in part because the ways they can be abused is still being studied. But startups like the companies behind Lenza and ChatGPT have another approach. Release the tools publicly, see how they're used, then try to put up guardrails to prevent abuse. Obviously, sending tools this powerful into the wild will produce all sorts of results. Jen King studies privacy and AI at Stanford. She's noticed one thing ChatGPT does that's concerning. You can give it a prompt to explain something in terms that make it sound extremely legitimate, but the underlying facts are actually incorrect. For instance, I asked ChatGPT to generate a job cover letter for me, and it made a passable one. But it also said I worked for a newspaper in a city I used to live in but never actually worked for. Some AI researchers have a name for this, hallucinating. AI researcher Etzioni says, though ChatGPT can answer questions in a way that seems persuasive, nothing it says should be taken as fact. A colleague of mine referred to ChatGPT as a mouth without a brain. With Lenza, one problem many users are reporting is that the avatars produced tend to overly sexualize women. Sometimes the app will even create a completely naked cartoon version of you, even if all you gave the app were photos of your face. King with Stanford says this is because Lenza, like most AI tools, is trained using vast amounts of data from the internet. And it's the internet, so there's lots of pornography. Some of these companies are really training their, their models on what I would call the internet's toxic waste. And so to me, it's no surprise that we see these effects. The company behind Lenza has responded to people who have complained about their avatars being sexualized. It says it has tweaked its AI algorithm so that nudity is avoided. And if your avatar does have nudity, the company says it should now be blurred. Not everyone is upset with their Lenza avatars. There already are reports of people bringing their Lenza portraits to plastic surgeons for inspiration. Bobby Allen, NPR News. So, was 2022 the year that advancements in artificial intelligence made the world a much scarier place? Or does it just feel that way? Put another way, did I write this introduction or did a chatbot? Brian Christian is author of the best-selling book, The Alignment Problem, and he's here to help us look back and forward at the impact AI is having on our lives. Good to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, in addition to everything we just heard about, this was also the year that a piece of art generated by AI won a prize at the Colorado State Fair. This was the year a Google engineer claimed that an AI chatbot was sentient, even though many experts later downplayed his claim. Put all this together and like, what kind of a headline would you write about AI in 2022? I think this is really the year that AI research went mainstream. A mm -hmm. lot of these systems have been kind of brewing within research labs for the last several years. But this is really, I would say, the, the grand debut in terms of actually having real-world impact and being the kind of thing that now millions of people are actively using every day. So if this isn't necessarily new technology, but newly public technology, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean that all of this is now publicly, recognizably in our faces? I think a lot of the concerns that people had about this technology that existed in the academic literature as hypothetical problems have now become 
real problems that we need to figure out and muddle through in real time, whether that's the sort of concerns of plagiarism or using intellectual property, whether that is, you know, the ability to create misinformation and toxic speech, all of these things that people had been worrying about as possible downstream consequences of this technology, well, now, you know, the, the rubber has hit the road and we actually have to deal with it. The abstract suddenly became real. Very much. So when you hear about these kinds of new advances, where do you emotionally land on the spectrum between excited and terrified? I wouldn't say that I'm on the spectrum between excited and terrified. I would say I feel very excited and very terrified. <laughs> Both can coexist at the same time. Indeed. What's the one big AI innovation that you are holding your breath to see, whether in a positive or negative way? I think that we currently have systems that can do amazing things with language. We have a, systems that can do amazing things with visual imagery. There are a lot of exciting advances in robotics. And I think there, there is a sense of collective holding of breath to see what happens when we can actually integrate these things together. What does it mean to have a system that can both use language in this seemingly human level fluency, but also move around the world physically and understand what it's looking at. I think that's that's the road that we're on at the moment. What is is that like a, a robot that moves through the world? Is that a virtual reality immersive ecosystem? Like what, what is that? I think we're probably going to see a little bit of all of the above. Um, so that might be domestic robots that you know help fold your laundry or something like that. I think. It's in the shorter term, more likely to be uh, assistants that help you on your computer, but they can actually see what's on your screen. So they could navigate a website for you and purchase your airline tickets or do a bunch of uh, you know scholarship research for you on the internet, um, that sort of thing. I think those systems are going to be more and more a part of just how we navigate the world digitally and then in the longer run physically too. Something to look forward to in 2023. <laughs> that is Brian Christian. He writes about the human implications of computer science and he's author of the book, The Alignment Problem, Machine Learning and Human Values. Oh, by the way, I did write that introduction. Brian Christian, thanks a lot. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. The winningest professional golfer of all time died last weekend. Kathy Whitworth was a giant in the golf world, capturing 88 pro wins in just 23 years. If you watch her golf swing, you understand why she was so successful. But when you meet her, you understand what took her to the next level. And there was just something about, about Kathy. She had this determination that's almost indescribable. That's golf analyst Lisa Cornwell. She says in a game where consistency is the hardest thing to master, Whitworth stood above the other greats. We talk about Tiger and Jack, and you think about Annika, what she's done in her career, and then there's Kathy Whitworth, who surpassed them all. And she did it when they were barely making any money. She did it simply for the love of the game and chasing those wins. Whitworth was born in West Texas in 1939. She started playing golf when she was 15 years old. And despite her record wins later in life, it took her a while to acclimate to playing professionally. 
As a rookie on the LPGA Tour in 1959, she played 26 events and earned less than $1,300. She thought about quitting, but she kept it up and in 1962 won her first pro tournament. In Whitworth's, in Whitworth's Legends of Hall of Fame, in Whitworth's Legends Hall of Fame speech in 2013, she joked that she didn't actually win that tournament. It was merely that her competitor, Sandra Haney, lost. But she said, I, I uh, three-putted the last hole to let Whitworth win her first tournament. <laughs> I said, well, I thank you very much. <laughs> so if anybody else out there did that, I, I thank you very much. <laughs> As Whitworth got better, the money got better, too. In 1981, she became the first woman in golf to surpass a million dollars in career earnings. Lisa Cornwell recalls that one of the things that set Whitworth apart was her flowing golf swing. At a time when golf clubs were heavy and made for men, Whitworth's tall frame allowed her to command the club with grace and finesse. There was no force movement. There was no herky-jerky movement. It was just graceful, but it was powerful. And so anytime I, I, I see an old swing of Kathy Whitworth, I, I always rewind it and watch it again because it's kind of like listening to a concert pianist when it just sort of made sense and Kathy's swing just sort of made sense. Beyond her talent on the course, Cornwell remembers Whitworth for her warmth and humor and her skill as a storyteller. She was just captivating. There was something about, she had that Texas charm. She had this confidence but there was something that just drew you into her. At that Hall of Fame event in 2013, Whitworth exhibited a little of that characteristic panache as she reflected on her victorious career. My career was just uh, the best. Um, of course, I was pretty successful at it. I, I, I admit to that, and, uh, uh, and that made it more fun. <laughs> Kathy Whitworth died on Christmas Eve. She was 83. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next, John Kabat-Zinn, the founder of Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, talks about how to manage stress and uncertainty. And coming up in the next hour of All Things Considered, newspapers will soon stop the presses in three of Alabama's largest cities and move to digital-only publication, and that is raising questions about the future of local journalism. That's really what you're dealing with, is what is the relevance of these papers? in a digital age. That's coming up in the next hour of All Things Considered. Traffic delays are finally gone on the mass turnpike eastbound between Weston and Newton. It was slow through the stretch for much of the day today. This morning, a dump truck with its lift in the upright position struck the Auburn Street Bridge over the highway in Newton. Inspectors say there was some damage to a beam on the bridge, and they have to inspect it further. But for now, crews have cleared the scene. The dump truck driver suffered minor injuries. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering on Monday, January 30th at City Space for conversation and food tasting with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. Get tickets at WB. 
wbur.org slash events. Overnight tonight, clear skies about the mid-30s. Then tomorrow, even milder than today was, up around 56 with sunshine through the day. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's independent journalism is essential to our democracy. Listener support is what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. You hear a lot about mindfulness these days, but what is that really? Mindfulness is awareness. Awareness is a very, very big deal. It gives us new degrees of freedom for dealing with the challenges that are facing us as individuals and also as a species. John Kabat-Zinn is the founder of Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. It's a program that's now used by hospitals and medical clinics around the world. For NPR's Life Kit, Shireen Marisol Meraji spoke with John Kabat-Zinn about how to manage stress, uncertainty, and difficulties by paying close attention. So where does meditation fit into mindfulness? So mindfulness is often spoken of as the heart of Buddhist meditation. Uh, So it's a form of meditation that really is the cultivation of intimacy with awareness. We have to learn to enter the domain of awareness because so much of the time we're living in distraction. And that was true for thousands of years. So we didn't have to wait for the iPhone to be distracted. But now we're distracted to an infinitely higher degree than ever before. Mindfulness can slow it down so that we uh, actually are capable of driving our own vehicle, so to speak, and living optimal lives of well-being that are not merely self-centered to optimize things for ourselves. The more we are our full dimensionality of being, the more we are there for our family, for our children, for our you know partners, for our friends, and for our colleagues at work, and for the world itself. For everybody who is listening to this, who's like, yes, I want this in my life. I want to figure out how to be more authentically myself. I want to be more aware. um, And I want to be a better steward to this planet. Where do they start if they've never had a mindfulness practice? Yeah, good question. And the other thing is, of course, if you're simply aware of all of the catastrophic things that are happening, you might feel completely disempowered and depressed and anxious about the whole thing. So where do you start? Uh, a good place to start is awareness of the body. Right off the bat, this is an invitation to just drop in and experience the actuality of, say, the body, breathing. Mm-hmm. So in this moment, if you're not driving out there as you're listening to this, uh, and you can close your eyes. Okay, I'm doing that. One of the first things you'll notice when you drop in in this way on your own experience is that there's breath going on. This is a very powerful door into the present moment because we don't care about yesterday's breath or the next breath or the, the last breath. The only thing we care about is this breath. And the feeling of it, not the thinking about it, but the feeling of the sensations of the breath coming in and out as I'm speaking, that's awareness. And so 
after not very long, you've probably discovered it already, but the mind is going to start uh, <laughs> drifting away. <laughs> Has that happened already? It's going to go here. It's going to go there. And so when you notice that your mind, which you gave the assignment to feel the breath in the present moment, when you notice it's not doing that, but it's off someplace else having lunch in a restaurant or reviewing something that happened a long time ago or whatever it is, notice what's on your mind in this moment. Because you know what? It's on your mind in this moment. You're back in the present moment. As soon as you recognize that I'm off the breath, I don't even remember the breath. And look, guess what? The body's going to be totally loyal and it will keep on breathing so you can begin again. And what's growing is a lot more interesting than a muscle. What grows is your access to awareness and ability to, in some sense, live an awake and aware life and let that become your more or less go-to mode or your default mode rather than being in stress reactivity all the time and really being more or less mindless, especially when the proverbial stuff is hitting the proverbial fan. That's when we tend to uh, see red and lose our minds completely. And then one last thing is that the real meditation practice is the 24 hours itself. It's life itself. So it's not sitting on a cushion in a cross-legged posture or lying in a yoga pose called the corpse pose or anything like that. That's all fabulous. But we're cultivating that so that we get more comfortable with living our all our moments as if they really mattered and therefore being there for them. The good ones, the bad ones, the ugly ones, the stressful ones, the difficult ones, the painful ones, and understanding that the more our heart and our mind are open in awareness, uh, the more we have new degrees of freedom uh, that are both profoundly healthy and healing, but also help us learn, grow, and transform across life itself. There are misconceptions out there about the benefits of a mindfulness practice. What do you think the biggest misconceptions are? The biggest misconception, I would say, is that you're supposed to make your mind blank. And that if mm. your mind is blank, then your stress will go away and you won't be in any emotional pain or physical pain. And it, meditation is some special state. And if you're doing it right, you'll just nail it. You'll just land it. And then everything will be fantastic. Uh, let me just say that that is such a crock that uh, <laughs> it really is a kind of fiction that is unfortunately very prevalent in the society. There's no place to go, there's nothing to do, and there's no special state that you're supposed to attain. So it's the hardest work in the world, it's also the easiest work in the world, mm -hmm. uh, if you're willing to actually uh, be touched enough by whatever your impulse is to care about it or to care about yourself in this way. And then the benefits are just vast and the costs are minimal in a way because you're working on non-distraction. And since we're so distracted always anyway, uh, we're not really ourselves when we're not really present. If you're in some sense nodding your head or something is resonating in your heart with even 10% of what I've said, that's really trustworthy. And it's not coming mm -hmm. from me, it's coming from you. And it's coming from the dance that's happening between 
my voice in your heart and your ears. And, and there's a certain kind of mystery to this where we're all each other's teachers and we're all each other's fellow humans. And so I trust that as listeners, you'll find your own way. And it's kind of like following a thread. And at a certain point, you follow this thread and then you'll go in another direction and you trust that and you'll follow that thread. And then you finally realize that all these threads are really your own heart befriending itself. That was John Kabat-Zinn speaking with Shireen Marisol Maraji for Life Kit. And if you want to be mindful about your resolutions in the new year, check out Life Kit's Resolution Planner. There you will find over 40 ideas to help with your own personal growth. You can find that at npr.org slash new years. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Should be a beautiful, clear night tonight for planet gazing. Should be a lot that you can see with a naked eye down around the mid-30s tonight. Then even milder weather tomorrow. Glorious sunshine up around 56 degrees. Saturday, the last day of the year, mainly cloudy but still mild in the mid-50s with a chance of rain sometime after 5 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org donate. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. For the world of crypto, the year started with exuberance and ended with the collapse of a major player and concerns about crypto's viability. The moment you kind of have one problem somewhere in the crypto sector, it spreads very, very quickly. What the world of crypto looks like today. It is Thursday, December 29th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, they'll be stopping the presses on newspapers in three of Alabama's largest cities. They'll move to digital publication in 2023, part of a broader and often concerning trend in local journalism. Climate change is under an existential threat to coral reefs, but a select few are better at handling the heat. New research is showing how they do it. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street coming up at 6.01.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. After several days of holiday travel chaos, Southwest Airlines expects things will be back to normal tomorrow with only minimal disruptions. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports the airline also says it will return lost bags at no cost. In a new statement of apology, Southwest says passengers can apply online for baggage returns, flight refunds, and travel expenses from this week's disruption. Like so many, April Prevost and her family of five were stuck in Denver for four days with no luggage. We were told that night that our bags had already flown to Memphis, which didn't make sense to us because no flights had taken off. And sure enough, when they finally got to Memphis, it turned out the bags had been in Denver the whole time. To her shock, Wednesday night, the airline delivered the luggage to her door. Still, Prevost remains skeptical about getting back the $1,500 they had to spend while stranded. Jennifer Lutton, NPR News. Officials say it's now okay to drive on the roads of storm-ravaged Buffalo, New York, even as the search continues for people who may remain stranded or worse after last week's historic blizzard. Erie County Executive Mark Polencar says right now, 39 deaths in the county have been linked to the storm, but that could change. Unfortunately, there are families in this community uh, who still have not been able to identify where a loved one is. They're missing, and we do have still uh, John Doe's. And eventually those family members are going to find out the worst news possible. And to those who've lost a loved one, once again, you you have my deepest condolences and sympathies, and, and we stand with you at this tragic time of your life. A warming trend is moving into that region now, as in other parts of the Midwest and eastern U.S. An Arizona Superior Court has announced the official winner of the mandatory recount in an extremely close race for Attorney General there. Jill Ryan reports from member station KJZZ in Phoenix. In one of the tightest elections in state history, Democrat Chris Mays came out on top in the recount for the Attorney General's race. However, as Judge Timothy Thomason relayed, her lead of just 511 votes over Republican Abraham Hamaday shrank. Chris Mays, one million 254,809. Abraham Hamada, 1,254,529. That is just a 280-vote difference. Hamaday had filed a separate lawsuit despite the automatic recount being in the process, but had lost that bid. After the results of the recount were read, his lawyers asked for a delay so they could consider other legal avenues, but that was denied. For NPR News, I'm Jill Ryan in Phoenix. Wall Street, the Dow rose 345, the Nasdaq up 264. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. An investigation by two U.S. House committees has found fault with the Cambridge-based drug maker Biogen and the Food and Drug Administration. The committee's reports released today concluded the FDA failed to follow its typical procedures when it approved Biogen's Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm. It also says Biogen wrongly developed an aggressive plan to market the drug despite concerns over its efficacy, its safety, and affordability. The FDA says the approval was based on a scientific evaluation and it has started making changes to its processes based on the committee's recommendations. Biogen says it stands by its actions.
Boston's COVID test positivity rate is now at 11 percent. The city's public health commission says more than 100 people per day in Boston are testing positive for the illness. The city's goal is to remain below about 70. Public health officials are warning of potential increase in COVID and other respiratory illnesses following the holidays. About 13 people a day in Massachusetts are dying with COVID. A 15-year battle over plans to build a wood-burning power plant in Springfield has entered a new stage. The owner of the proposed biomass facility is suing the state. It's critical of the state for revoking a key permit needed for the project to move forward, as WBR's Miriam Wasser reports. The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection originally issued an air quality permit for the facility in 2012. But the state canceled that permit nine years later, citing construction delays and public health concerns and a state appellate board upheld that decision in November. But the project's developer isn't giving up. The Palmer Renewable Energy Company filed a lawsuit in Suffolk Superior Court this week challenging the decision to revoke the permit. The state declined to comment and company lawyers couldn't be reached. But in a court file, the company said it stands to lose $11 million it's already invested if it can't build the plant. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. If you're looking for a way to ring in the new year, Boston's waterfront will be lined with ice sculptures on Saturday. More than 30 sites around the harbor are commissioning the frozen art. Rebecca Smirling is director of programs at Boston Harbor Now. Her team wanted to create a way for people to get excited about the new year leading up to the midnight fireworks. She says some of the sculptures are pretty creative. You can find generally in the seaport um, lots of really fun mythical creatures, including mermaids and yetis. The sculptures will be on display starting at 1 p.m. on New Year's uh, Eve day. Celtics will be without head coach Joe Mazzula for a second straight game tonight. He hurt his eyes and suffered corneal abrasions during a recent game of pickup basketball. The Celtics announced within the last hour that assistant coach Damon Stoudemire will lead the team tonight against the L.A. Clippers 7.30 game time. Should fall to about 36 degrees overnight tonight, then relatively balmy weather spent tomorrow and the holiday weekend. Another sunny day tomorrow in the mid-50s. Saturday clouds prevail up around 55 degrees. Chance of rain New Year's Eve right about 50 for a low. Then Sunday New Year's Day starts up partly sunny, breezy and mild in the mid-50s again. 48 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by FJC, a foundation of philanthropic funds working to meet the needs of the nonprofit sector through donor-advised funds, fiscal sponsorships, and bridge lending. More at FJC.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Here's some good news about the winter storms that have swept through the U.S. over the last week. For Western states dealing with drought, these blizzards are like deposits in a savings account. In the spring, the melting snowpack will pour into the region's water supply. Andrew Schwartz is with UC Berkeley's Central Sierra Snow Lab. Hey there. How's it going? Good. Where have we reached you? Describe what it looks like around you. I'm up in Soda Springs, California, which is about 45 minutes northwest of Lake Tahoe. So we're right here on the Pacific Crest where all the big storm systems come in and slam into the Sierra Nevada. We've got some big fat snowflakes falling outside, a new coat of snow on top of some existing stuff. And it's it's a bit of a winter wonderland out there, to be honest. How much snow are we talking about? I mean, in Northern California to start with, what are you seeing relative to average snowfall for this time of year? 
So right now, in terms of overall snowfall, we have about 189% of what we would expect in an average year. Wow. So we've had 174 inches so far, which is absolutely fantastic. Now, of course, we're primarily concerned with our water content, right? Yeah. Because we want to make sure that that's all going into our reservoirs and we can try to claw our way out of this drought. So that's still good. That's still at 170%, not quite as high as the 189%, but we're definitely there. We're looking good so far. What about a state like Nevada, which is seeing its worst drought in, by some measures, 1,200 years? I mean, how much of a dent can one good year of precipitation really make? Well, Nevada's doing well also. You know, we're seeing them anywhere from 170 to almost 200% of average. So they're looking quite good now as well. But with that being said, we are in such a precipitation deficiency that we need potentially a whole nother year of rain and snowfall to make up for the drought. But if we can continue these numbers and we get around to April and we're still at this wonderful above average point, we can start talking about coming out a little bit. Maybe not completely, but a little bit. Why is snowpack more useful than heavy rain when it comes to fighting drought? Snow is really what we want to fight drought because when we look at drought, we can divide it into two different sections. We have natural drought, which affects our ecosystems and uh, the plants and animals that reside in them. And then we have our own human drought, where, of course, we're concerned about our water supply and our purposes, such as agriculture. So when we talk about snow being on top of the mountains and being more important than perhaps rainfall, it's because it sits up there and really acts as a reservoir that slowly releases water in spring and summer. And while it's slowly releasing that water that goes down into our dams, it's also keeping kind of a lid on our fire danger by keeping the forest nice and moist and healthy. And it's preventing any type of real unhealthy ecosystem development that might be related to heat or water stress. So rain is definitely helpful, but we really like to see snowpack for those reasons. We're still early in the season, so what are you looking for in the months ahead? Uh, this is a terrific start to the season. We're very, very excited to have it. That being said, we started the same way last year, right? We had nearly 18 feet of snowfall in the month of December alone last year here at the lab, which was an all-time high, and it was absolutely wonderful. But then the faucet shut off January through March. So what we're really looking for now is just for this storm cycle to continue. We have this great base. We need more snow to come in on top of it and provide us with even more snow on top of the above average that we already have. That way this can continue into the spring and we end up coming out of the drought a little bit. Andrew Schwartz is lead scientist and manager of the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab. Thanks a lot. Thank you. For crypto, 2022 started with exuberance and a buying frenzy, but the year is ending with a catastrophic collapse and what's allegedly one of the biggest financial frauds in history. NPR's David Gura reports. Remember all the commercials and the celebrity endorsements? There was Tom Brady pushing crypto on a buddy who's a bartender in Boston, still upset Brady left the Patriots. What's up? I'm getting into crypto. With FTX. You in? I believe I'm in, but still hate you. Understood. In the early days of 2022, crypto ads were everywhere, on TV, but also on bus stops and in fortune cookies. Crypto companies spent tens of millions of dollars on marketing. January and February may have been peak hype for the crypto industry, according to Molly White. She's a crypto skeptic and a fellow at Harvard who runs the site Web3 is going just great. Prices had hit all-time highs. People were making 
irrational amounts of money. The value of Bitcoin was almost four times what it is now, close to its all-time high. And the crypto industry was trying to grow its customer base to mainstream itself, as White puts it. On The Tonight Show, Paris Hilton talked to Jimmy Fallon about her wedding, about a trip she took to Burning Man, and then about how she's hawking NFTs, another kind of digital asset, basically kind of cartoony crypto art. And I want to give one to everyone in the audience. Everyone gets an NFT. Yes, everyone. Everyone gets an NFT. Well, peak hype, as Molly White put it, didn't last long. Financial regulators started to crack down on crypto more than they had. And as the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates to fight high inflation, crypto prices tanked with stocks and other assets. And we saw the start of what's been called a crypto winter, a downturn that's gone on and on. You know, we've been living in the crypto winter for the better part of a year. Lee Reiners teaches cryptocurrency law at Duke University. And while the crypto crash hurt investors, especially people who bought in near the highs, it also revealed bigger systemic problems in the crypto industry. It really exposed a number of crypto firms who were, you know, overextended, had poor risk management, you know, or otherwise just engaging in fraudulent activity. Now, we'll get to FTX in a minute, but before that collapse, there was a string of failures, a pair of cryptocurrencies called Terra and Luna, the trading platform Voyager, a crypto hedge fund, BlockFi, Celsius, the list goes on and on. And according to Reiners, it highlights something troublesome about crypto. These firms are deeply interconnected. And so the moment you kind of have one problem somewhere in the crypto sector, it spreads very, very quickly. Which brings us to FTX. I promised we'd get to it. FTX is one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world. And at the start of 2022, it was valued at $32 billion. Now it's bankrupt. More than a million people are worried the money they put into it has disappeared. And the company's founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, has been charged with criminal fraud. Reiner says FTX's collapse was the biggest event in crypto's history, uh, history, he adds, that's, quote, replete with a lot of failures and scams and frauds and hacks. And now people are wondering what could be the next domino to fall. Binance is the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange. And after a recent series of panic-driven withdrawals, there's worry about its viability. Binance is pushing back against those fears and against crypto skepticism. And Molly White says the company has to. If people start to question the industry as a whole or crypto as an asset class, that is devastating for Binance. And so they are doing anything that they can to prevent that from happening. It's disorienting to look around the world of crypto today to see how much has changed. I think crypto would be lucky if all they were was set back by a couple of years. True believers expect Bitcoin will bounce back and this crypto winter will thaw eventually. But White says for people who were never crypto enthusiasts, who maybe saw an ad or felt this fear of missing out, it's a different story, especially after the collapse of FTX, after so much money just vanished. I think people are starting to think of crypto as, you know, this big scam that they would not want anything to do with. And that poses an existential problem for crypto, White says, because for crypto to work, it requires an ever larger stream of people to keep buying it. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Time is running out for coral reefs as the climate changes. That has scientists searching for super corals. Those are the few that can endure hotter temperatures. 
According to new research, that ability to survive isn't just about the corals, but also their roommates. NPR's Lauren Summer has more. There is a lot of relationship drama happening on coral reefs. Not among all the fish and marine life, but inside the corals themselves. It's a really complex ecosystem inside of each coral animal. Kate Quigley is a research scientist at James Cook University and the Mindaroo Foundation in Australia. She says corals have algae living inside them, almost like renters in an apartment building. Those algae make food for the corals, and in exchange, they get a free place to live. So, you know, there's this nice symbiosis that goes on, and that's really the powerhouse of the reef. But that relationship starts breaking down when the oceans heat up, which is happening more and more with climate change. The algae gets stressed. They are then giving off toxins, and then the coral is also suffering on its part. So the corals kick the algae out. It's known as coral bleaching when they turn a ghostly white color. Without their roomies making food, corals can die this way. But not all of them. Quigley and her colleagues found a few spots on the Great Barrier Reef where some corals survived. So these reefs were just really cooking, but for some reason, they were resilient. There were two reasons, actually, as Quigley and her colleagues published in the journal Science Advances. First, those corals had algae that were especially resistant to heat. And second, after they lost some of their algae, those corals did a better job of getting new ones. They basically found new tenants fast. It really helps to identify reefs that we really need to make sure we're protecting, right? Those resilient reefs, those reefs that are naturally good at surviving, we need to make sure that we're releasing them of other pressures. But not all corals can become more resilient by switching to heat-resistant algae. And that means the world's reefs will change dramatically, says Lupita Ruiz-Jones, an assistant professor at Chaminade University of Honolulu. Even if we could engineer some super-duper coral, there might be just a few species, right, that would live in that future world. And that's, I think, the really sad part for me is just imagining this world where we just have much less beauty in the water. Even the most resilient corals probably can't withstand continued climate change, she says. The only real fix is up to humans and switching the world off burning fossil fuels. Lauren Summer, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks have got a year-end rally going. The Dow grew by a full percent today, 345 points to close at 33,221. S&P added one and three quarters percent to close at 3849. The Nasdaq grew by more than two and a half percent to settle at 10,478. Details coming up on Marketplace at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. You want to stay updated on upcoming WBR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBR Events newsletter. Go to wbur.org newsletters. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. 
We should have clear skies tonight down around the mid-30s, then even milder weather coming up. Tomorrow, glorious sunny, up around 56 degrees. For the last day of the year, Saturday, mainly cloudy, still mild, though, in the mid-50s. A chance of rain sometime after 5 o'clock. Could have showers New Year's Eve, pretty comfortable if you're outside, about 50 degrees for a low. And then on Sunday, New Year's Day, some early morning rain, then clouds and sunshine both making an appearance up in the mid-50s again. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Have you ever saved the front page of the newspaper as a memento of an important moment? Or maybe you clip coupons and recipes? Well, in three of Alabama's largest cities, the printing presses will stop rolling early next year. That'll spell the end of the Birmingham News, the Huntsville Times, and Mobile's press register as they go all digital. It's part of a national trend in local journalism, one that has some Birmingham subscribers worried they'll be left behind. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. It's gotten harder to buy a copy of the Birmingham News, but you can find the latest edition hanging from a spindle at the public library downtown. And a lot of people have read it. Look at this spaghetti sauce on the side over there. Cheryl Wheeler-Stewart points out food stains splattered on the front page. She's a former editor and reporter who spent nearly two decades working for the Birmingham News. Front page used to be that place that was, I guess you could say, sacred. To pick up that Sunday paper, open it up, and see your name at the top. You know, that's, that was, I mean, it was just special, you know. Stewart says the move to digital only is a loss for the community. It's just not a good thing. I think a metropolitan city, Birmingham is on the move. I think a city like Birmingham needs a printed newspaper. Ten years ago, the Birmingham News and sister papers in Huntsville and Mobile went from publishing daily down to three times a week. Even that will end after February 26th, after parent company Alabama Media Group announced it will permanently stop the presses. While Stewart is sad to see the end of the print era, she acknowledges that even she now mostly gets her news from the paper's digital site, AL.com. Alabama Media Group President Tom Bates says that's where the audience is. The growth on the digital side for us has been extraordinary. And so if our job is to get out important stories, we need to get them out the way that people want to receive them. Bates says a decade ago, the combined daily circulation for the Birmingham News, the Huntsville Times, and the Mobile Press Register was about 260,000. Now it's down to roughly 30,000, he says, compared to AL.com's daily reach of about a million people a day. Longtime journalists in the newsroom saw this day coming. You know, I mourned the newspaper a dozen years ago, frankly. John Archibald is a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for AL.com and has been with the Birmingham News since 1986. Sitting outside a local coffee shop, Archibald says he hardly ever sees the print edition anymore. It might sound like heresy for an old newspaper man, but he says that's the future of journalism. Well, I, you know, I have nostalgia for print and I love the newspaper. It's not the paper that I love. It's the notion of going out and covering news that people need to know. What's happening in Alabama is where local papers have been headed for a while, says Penny Muse Abernathy with the Local News Initiative at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. It is part of a whole progression as we've seen the diminishment of daily newspapers over the past two decades. 
Abernathy is the author of annual reports on the state of local news around the nation. The 2022 report found that at least one in five of the 100 largest newspapers in the country is now publishing two or fewer times a week in a print edition. As papers disappear, Abernathy says the question is whether digital publications can play the same role in civic life that newspapers traditionally have. And I think that's really what you're dealing with is what is the relevance of these papers in a digital age. People have been reading the Birmingham News since the late 1800s. Mayor Randall Woodfin says it will be an adjustment no longer having it. It'll be a shock to the system. At age 41, Woodfin is a digital-first news consumer, but he knows not everyone is wired that way. We embrace the innovation. I would just hope we still find a way to communicate with every generation. I think over this last decade, I've received my news more digitally anyway, so I was able to brace. Uh, I would be, for those who haven't braced and still depend on those three days, I'm concerned. She called my stepmom right here in front of you to see what she says. Let's do it. He dials up Yvonne Fluker Woodfin, who steadfastly clips and collects newspaper articles about her stepson. Hello. Hello, young lady. Hey, Dallas, how are you? Things are good. What about yourself? Oh, doing mine pretty good, thank you. I wanted to talk to you about the newspaper. Are you aware that they're going away from all print? How do you feel about that? Well, I think that will make a lot of people not be aware of what's going on. Access is a concern. In the pandemic, public schools here found that about one in five families had limited or no internet access. Still, you don't see newspapers like you used to, scattered around tables at the coffee shop or local lunch counter. To hear how longtime Birmingham News subscribers are reacting, I stopped by the lunch buffet at the American Legion in Homewood, a close-in suburb. We call this our government in exile table back here. Al Lapeer is a former head of the Alabama Democratic Party. He's sitting at a long table of politicos who get together every Wednesday. Lapeer says he's really not surprised that the newspaper's days are numbered. I noticed a few years ago, even you bought the Birmingham News on a Saturday or a Sunday. Everything you saw on their, their media site the next, the day before was there, so why get it? But across the table, retired political scientist Natalie Davis defends the paper. She still subscribes and worries about what will be lost when it's gone. The newspaper is probably the only thing left where if everybody reads the story in the same way and gets the same facts, then you have a baseline. And that, that will go away. And it's gone. It's gone probably now. But I mean, that's what newspapers do. Retired veterinarian Chandler McGee stops by the table. He's 84 and says the Birmingham News has been a lifeline. One of the joys of my life is reading the newspaper. He lives in a retirement community where he says few residents get news online. I think it means, especially for senior citizens, that we're going to be cut off from what's happening in our city and our state. Alabama Media Group executives say that's not their intent and believe everyone in the three metro areas they serve should have a way to access their free content online, whether on a computer or smartphone. 
AL.com columnist Roy Johnson came to Birmingham in 2015. He'd been a longtime sports writer at Sports Illustrated and the New York Times and various national magazines, some of which are no longer in publication. I really have lived a life that represents the evolution of the media industry. He says the distribution method might have changed, but the mission remains. You know, one of these days we're going to have to explain to our grandkids why we put words on a piece of paper, balled it up, rolled it up, put it in a car, a truck, drove it around and threw it on people's driveway, and that's how they got their news. I said, for them, it'll be like the Pony Express to us. Johnson's advice to longtime print readers, this is the digital age, so come along. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Birmingham. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports, Celtics take on the Clippers at the Garden tonight, and they'll be without their head coach. Joe Mazzula will miss a second straight game. He suffered abrasions to his corneas during a pickup basketball game. Assistant coach Damon Stoudemire will step in once again. Game time is in just about an hour. The Bruins are off until Saturday. State transportation crews are warning of potential traffic delays tonight on two area highways. Crews will be making road repairs on 93 North between Somerville and Stoneham, also on Route 95 North from Waltham to Lexington. They'll be closing lanes from 9 tonight until 4 tomorrow morning. It's 6.30 and Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Be swept away with Beethoven and Mozart like never before. January 6th and 8th at Symphony Hall. Tickets at handelandhaydn.org.